You may be seated. And when you are, please open your copies of God's Word to the book of Romans. We begin a new chapter today, uh, chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 5. But as is our custom, we'll begin reading uh, the text we thought about last week. So we're going to begin reading at Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Today we'll see um, the apostle begin to shift out of this uh, argument that he has been making throughout uh, the previous chapters and, and kind of turning to ask the question, what does this mean? Let's give attention to God's word. We're going to begin reading at Romans chapter 4, verse 13. This is God's inspired word. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. Lord, you know how limited we are, how finite we are. You know how we need to be reminded of your truth again and again. Lord, we do pray that you would speak to us today. We pray that you would reach down, that you would give us ears to hear, Lord. Would you give ears to hear? Would you give a quietness and a focus? And Lord, would you speak? Would you help us to hear? Would you help us to have confidence in you? Would you help us to rejoice in you? Lord, we'd ask you to hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. If you think back, what was the happiest moment in your life? And maybe that's too hard of a question. Sometimes people ask me, what's your favorite food? And you know I have a hard time whittling it down uh, to one type. So let me ask you this question. Maybe it's more fair. What are some of the most happy moments you've experienced thus far in your life? If you're still with your parents, maybe it was a puppy that you received for a birthday gift. Or if, if you're older, maybe it was being accepted into that uh, dream college. Or maybe it was the day you got engaged, you asked her to marry you and she said yes. Or maybe it was a, the day itself. They remember the joy when you were taking those lovely photos. Or, or maybe it was the day your child was born. We can all think of great moments of joy and happiness because of something great that happened to us or something great that we received. But what about that time in your life where you came to realize, maybe in a a different way, that the Bible was true and that you believed it? When you committed your life to Christ, and you realize that if you asked him a question, he actually answers. He's alive. Well, you recognize I have a relationship with the living God. I've got his words, his word at my fingertips. Do you remember the joy? Do you recall the excitement you felt when you realized the magnitude of what God had accomplished for you in Christ? Well, we see Paul radiate that same kind of excitement and joy in this text as he thinks about it. Um, He says, what has happened should make us rejoice Notice the repetition of that word rejoice in our text. You'll see it there in verse two, in verse three, and verse 11. 
So as we reflect on this text, we're going to ask, why should Christians rejoice in the gospel of grace? And we'll begin answering that question with our first heading, rejoice in justifications, peace. Rejoice in justifications, peace. If you are using the ESV, you'll notice that the very first word of the chapter is therefore. And one of the first principles of interpretation I learned as a young believer is when you see that little word there in your Bible, therefore, you're to stop and you're to think about what is it there for, right? Many of you have been uh, taught this principle. What has the author just finished saying? Because whatever it was that he just finished saying, now we're getting the implications of that. We're getting, in some sense, the results, the ramifications. What has Paul just finished saying? In the previous chapters, Paul establishes the universal sinfulness of humanity and our need for salvation, our need for the gospel. And then he points us to the sufficiency of faith in Jesus for justification, for our right standing, for forgiveness. And after explaining the necessity of being justified through faith and outlining the process of justification, Paul shifts his focus to the blessings that it brings. And you'll notice that the writing style even begins to transition as you look at this text. He stops presenting arguments and he expresses heartfelt gratitude. Paul begins in verse one writing, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul says that Christians have peace with God through Jesus, he's referring to the reconciliation and restoration of our relationship with God. Peace in this context means being in a state of harmony, being in this state of forgiveness that we have, being reconciled with the Lord, no longer his enemy, but his friend. Before believing in Jesus, we were in a state of enmity and separation due to sin. Maybe, maybe you remember that feeling. It's like, when you're in sin, like the last thing you want to do is talk about religion or hang out with Christians or go to their social events or come and listen to some guy just talk on and on, right? Uh, for what seems like way too long. Romans 5.10 explains that we were all once enemies of God, but through Christ, we've been reconciled to him. God opens his welcoming arms to everybody in Christ. It's through faith in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross that we're justified and brought into a right relationship with God. Jesus brings peace and reconciliation with God through his atoning sacrifice. 
You can see that if you scan down and look especially at verses 8 and 9. It just deals with it directly. Through faith in him, through faith in Christ, we experience the peace that comes with being reconciled with God and forgiven of our sins. Right? We, we receive that inner peace, that peace of conscience, that burden. We have a quietness. We have a calm. We experience peace with God. And that's because we've been forgiven of our sins and we no longer live under condemnation. We have assurance of eternal life and hope of being with God forever. We can have confidence in God's promises and trust in his faithfulness. We talked about that. The promises of God, his character, how faithful he is. And Christians have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. What does the Spirit do? He provides comfort. He provides guidance. And he provides a deep sense of peace that surpasses understanding. The Spirit helps us in our weakness and brings us peace even in the midst of challenges. We can find peace in difficult circumstances knowing that God is with us in every situation. We draw strength from his presence and have peace that surpasses understanding even in times of hardship and persecutions. Christians aren't immune to challenges and struggles and pain, though, are they? No. Paul is going to address that in this very text. But our faith in Christ and our understanding of God's love, grace, and sovereignty can bring us a deep sense of peace and security in all circumstances, even in these very difficult ones. And that's because through Jesus, we stand in grace. Consider verse 2. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Paul is talking about the abundant grace of God that's been given to us in Christ. This grace includes God's unmerited favor. It includes his love, his forgiveness. But you would know that God would bestow every blessing upon you. And one of the blessings that God has given you is direct access to him. You can approach him with absolute confidence. You're welcome into his presence. Jesus paid the ultimate price in order to give you that gift. If you know parents with grown children, one thing you'll learn about them is if you ask them, hey, if you can have anything you want for your birthday, what would it be? You know what they almost always say? I just want to be with my kids. I want my kids to come here. I, want, I would love for all of my children to all come together. If I could have whatever I want, that's what I want for my, uh, my birthday. And likewise, God loves his children. 
He's delighted when you come and see him. His heart smiles when you visit. That is the kind of grace you stand in, believer. Paul says, and we rejoice. We rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The word rejoice means to boast with a sense of jubilation. It's exultant rejoicing. We just shout about it. We used to fall short of the glory of God, but now we boast in it. We've been freed from sin and we stand in grace and you have hope of future glory. In the New Testament, that concept of hope is beyond wishful thinking. It's a firm and unwavering assurance. It's a confident expectation of future blessings rooted in God's faithfulness. We find our hope firmly anchored in the person and work of Christ, which fills us with a sense of confident anticipation. And therefore, we rejoice in the assurance that God's promises will be fulfilled without fail. Well, Paul's been exploring the significance of being justified by faith and experiencing peace with God. And then he shifts our focus to the transformative power of God's love. He, he turns our attention directly to the redemptive love of God. And we learn that we can rejoice in love's transformation. That's our second heading. Rejoice in love's transformation. Gonna tell you something personal. You gotta promise that it's just gonna stay between the two of us. My bottom teeth are crooked. But the dentist told me, don't worry, when you smile, you just see your top teeth. So you don't have to get braces if you don't want to. And I thought, well, wow, that's a good option. Because I knew um, other young people who had braces and it seemed uh, painful because it would uh, hurt their gums at times and, and so forth. But, but in the end, when the braces come off, their teeth are beautiful and straight I didn't get braces because I was focused on the suffering rather than the future glory. Paul spoke of having a confident expectation of future glory. But it's so easy to lose sight of this hope when we find ourselves suffering. And we live in a fallen world where suffering is now a regular part of life. How do we endure the suffering we experience? We remember the future glory. Paul said we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then in verse three he continues, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. 
Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. We say we rejoice in suffering, right? Rejoice in suffering. Rejoicing in suffering seems paradoxical, doesn't it? But understand, this isn't a call to just suck it up and put on a happy face no matter what. That's not what God requires of his people. We're told in Romans 12 that we are to what? Weep with those who weep. And we see Jesus enter into the sorrow of others when they're mourning. As Christians, we're instructed to Rejoice in our sufferings because we're given a profound promise. God has redeemed our suffering, giving it purpose. God has redeemed our suffering, now giving it purpose. What does that mean? The suffering we endure isn't in vain. God takes our hardships and our sorrows, and our challenges, and he transforms them for our good. Our ability to rejoice in suffering comes from the understanding that suffering has a transformative purpose and isn't devoid of meaning in the life of the believer. As Christians, we can rejoice in suffering because we have a different perspective and hope. We can do this not only because we know that glory awaits for us in the future, but also because we know that our suffering is producing maturity in the present. And we could do this because we don't have to do it alone. In verse 5, Paul says, And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul is expressing the assurance and confidence that believers have in their hope, which is grounded in the unfailing love of God. He emphasizes that this hope doesn't disappoint or put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Scripture assures us that God is near to us in our trials and difficulties. In Psalm 34, 18, it says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God walks alongside his children and provides them with comfort. He provides them with strength. He supports them in times of suffering. He's not distant or detached. He's intimately involved in our lives, offering his love to us. And when Paul speaks of love being poured into our hearts, he's referring to the work of the Holy Spirit within believers. The Spirit who dwells in our hearts pours God's love into our inner being. 
And this love isn't merely a concept or intellectual knowledge, but a personal experience, a transformational encounter with the love of God. You see, believers are empowered by the Spirit, and he provides guidance and comfort and strength to navigate through life's challenges. In John 14, 26, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would be given to believers as a helper and a teacher. The Spirit enables us to live according to God's will. He empowers us to bear fruit, and he equips us with spiritual gifts for the edification of the church. But listen, maybe, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It sounds good, and I know it's true. But I don't feel the Lord's nearness. I don't feel it. And I certainly don't feel empowered. If these are the kinds of things that are running through your mind, you must go to the Lord in prayer. I can't help you. No one here can help you. The Lord can help you. But you must go to him. Be honest. Be as honest as you can. Tell him what you feel. Tell him what you think. Tell him that you need to feel his nearness. Ask him to make his presence known. Ask him to empower you. Beg him to empower you. Plead with him. God loves you. Consider verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul is emphasizing the Incredible demonstration of God's love through the sacrificial death of his son. He explains that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. You see, God's love isn't based on your worthiness or your righteousness. While you were still in a state of weakness, And sin, God demonstrated his love for you by sending his son to die for you. His love goes beyond human expectations and norms. God's love is an undeserved and unconditional love that reaches out to us in our brokenness. And his love is available to everyone, regardless of their past, regardless of their failures. You see, it's a love rooted in his grace, not in your performance. And understand that the death of Jesus on the cross exemplifies the sacrificial 
nature of God's love. It reveals his willingness to give up his son for your redemption. It demonstrates the depth of his care and commitment. The depth of his care and his commitment to your well-being. If, If God has already demonstrated such immense love and sacrifice by giving his son, we should rejoice knowing there is no doubt that he will provide everything else that we need for our lives. And and Paul wants us to be assured of these truths. So he points us to the cross where we see that we can rejoice in redemption's assurance. That's our third heading. Rejoice in redemption's assurance. In verse 9 and 10, Paul declares that we're saved now and forever. He writes, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Paul explains that if God in his love reconciled us to himself while we were still enemies through the death of his son Jesus, then it's even more certain that now as reconciled individuals, we will be saved through the ongoing life of Jesus. This is about assurance of salvation, isn't it? We don't have to fear future wrath because we've been justified by the blood of Christ. Through the, self, through the sacrificial death on the cross, through his death, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins and satisfied the righteous judgment of God. And as a result, believers are declared righteous in God's sight and their sins are forgiven. We deserve Judgment, but we're free. Where do we deserve to be right now outside of Christ? And yet we're free. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on our behalf, and there is no wrath, no wrath remaining for us. We're reconciled to God and are no longer regarded as enemies, but as his children. We're forgiven and restored into a right relationship with him. Therefore, there is no wrath awaiting for us in the future. And notice that in verse 10, Paul affirms that the reconciliation accomplished through the death of Jesus isn't a temporary or partial reconciliation, but a complete and everlasting one. Believers are reconciled to God both now and, forget or, and forever because of the finished work of Christ. This assurance is based 
on the faithfulness and promises of God who does not revoke his reconciling work or withdraw his love from his redeemed children. Christ's death on the cross provided the atonement for our sins and his resurrection demonstrated his victory over sin and death. Jesus conquered the power of sin and secured eternal life for us. And by being united to Christ through faith, we share in his resurrected life and experience salvation both in the present and for eternity. We can trust God to complete the task of saving us from future wrath. God's love and faithfulness are unchanging and he remains fully committed to the salvation and well-being of his people. We should find comfort and security in that, assurance in that. We know that God who has already done the difficult and costly task of redemption will certainly fulfill his promise. He will save us and deliver us from future judgment. That's a cause for rejoicing. Paul's given us several reasons to rejoice, but now he reaches the pinnacle of his celebration. In verse 11, he writes, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Likewise, we rejoice in the redemption of our suffering. And above all, we rejoice in God himself. Believers don't look at God as a means to an end. We see him as glorious. We see him as beautiful. We see him as a person. A person worthy of love and adoration. How do we rejoice in him? How do we express our adoration? We can express our gratitude by pouring out genuine appreciation for his love and grace. We can praise him through heartfelt singing and prayers. We can honor God for his matchless character and for his marvelous works. And expressing affection for God also involves living in obedience to his commands and surrendering our lives to his divine will. We demonstrate our love and devotion to him by aligning our thoughts and our words and our actions with principles that are found in his word and by following the example that Jesus set. Additionally, we can rejoice in God by cultivating a profound and intimate relationship with him. This involves setting aside time for prayer. It involves studying God's word 
and actively seeking his presence. Through this ongoing fellowship, we can experience the profound joy of knowing God more intimately and communing with him on a deeper level. And in that way, we can rejoice in God. As we reflect on the message of this text, we're reminded of the reasons why believers should rejoice in the gospel of grace. We're called to rejoice in the abundant blessings that God's grace has poured out upon us through Christ. We rejoice in the peace we find in justification. Through faith in Jesus, we have been justified and reconciled to God. We're no longer enemies, but have peace and harmony with him. We're no longer enemies, but have assurance of eternal life and the hope of being with God forever. And in the midst of challenges, we can find inner peace and strength knowing that God is with us and that his promises are true and that he will be faithful to them. And we rejoice in the transformative power of God's love Suffering may be a part of our lives, but we can rejoice because our suffering has purpose. God uses our hardships and the challenges we face to produce endurance, character, and hope within us. And we're not alone in our suffering. The Holy Spirit dwells within us and he pours out God's love in our hearts. He provides us with comfort and strength. Through the Spirit, we experience a deep and personal love of God. And we rejoice in the assurance of redemption. Through the death of Jesus, we have been justified and saved from the wrath of God. We're declared righteous. We're forgiven and reconciled to God, both now and forever. The sacrificial love of God displayed on the cross assures us that he will provide everything that we need for our lives. Let's rejoice in these truths. Let's rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and stand in the grace in which we are firmly rooted. The gospel. What does it call for us to do? How should we respond to what we've been given in Christ? Is it not with rejoicing? Scripture says that it is. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we forget the great benefits we have until they are gone. When the electricity goes off, Lord, we realize how much um, we're thankful for it 
and we're thankful for its stability. Lord, we're grateful that what we have in Christ will never go away, not temporarily, not ever. Lord, help us to not grow dull and just used to the gospel, to the gift that you have given us. Lord, stir our hearts, causing us a desire to rejoice and to give you glory. Renew us, Lord. Give us a fresh love. We'd ask that you would do this, even for your own glory's sake. We'd ask it in Christ's name, amen.